Hello, and welcome back to the Mean Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Shawnee B, and today my guest is Patrick Price. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Damn, thanks for having me. So, we don't know each other super well, but the few things I know about you is you're you're an embedded engineer, embedded software engineer. Yep, that's right. You are a pool shark. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good at I, <laughs> I, I could be a lot better, but I am getting better. Okay. And you also... We're thinking about moving to Hood River. Yeah, I was I was thinking about it because um, I work out here, but um, I'm kind of in, enjoying live. Like I moved back to Portland to be close to my family, and um, I'm enjoying living close to my family. And like, kind of one of my goals right now is purchasing my parents' home. They're moving out of it and mm. are going to like make it into an Airbnb in the next year or so because they're retiring. So I would like to purchase it from them. So that's uh, they're making it an Airbnb, but then you're going to purchase it and leave it as an Airbnb, or you're no, going to purchase probably, it. I'll probably live out of it and maybe okay. get roommates. The Airbnb probably. is just like a temporary Airbnb, yeah, just a temporary thing because I don't think they really want to sell it, or they're kind of on the edge of selling it. Mm, gotcha. And so what, you said you were thinking about moving to Hood River. Yeah. Right. What, 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 what's, is that, or I guess what other than your family is like the big deterrence and mm -hmm. what, are, what are the hardest things about making the switch to living in Hood River? Cause you have a job here, right? You already yeah. have a job that you're working remotely, but the company's based here. Yeah. Um, well, I used to really not, uh, enjoy working remotely, but I'm getting more comfortable with it. Um, and then um, there's what, some. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna ask what what's changing. What like what did you used to not like about it that mm. is becoming more comfortable? Oh, about uh, about working it, remotely. Working remotely, yeah. Um, I've gotten more comfortable with the um not being on for eight hours a day. Um, and this is, you know, probably not, not great as an employee, but, uh, like it's a little more relaxed and I appreciate that. And I definitely get less done than I do when I'm sitting in the office. And I, now I'm just more okay with that. Like I'm still, a, <laughs> still a very productive person. I get a lot done. <laughs> right. But so the company, like you might not be quite as productive, but their overhead is also reduced because they don't have to have a space for you yeah and, i would hope so right yeah so there's a trade-off there so yeah. is that do you miss the camaraderie because that was the biggest thing for me when i worked remotely for a little bit is just not having someone to hang out with face to face and just yeah say how's it going for five minutes in the morning or nope. whatever yeah for sure i just uh i try to get that in other places you know i go out and play pool a couple times a week so i'm like running into a lot of the same people there and and getting that social engagement i've i've been in some very unhealthy places in the past like when COVID started and we all started working remote and i didn't have kind of a framework of going outside and engaging with people like i, I had had that in the past but at that time i just didn't have any i didn't i wasn't going out to do exercise or anything like that and so COVID hit and I was working fully remote, and so I would like run into my roommates occasionally, um, and that was pretty much it. And I actually lost my mind; like uh, it was pretty bad. 
Yeah, no, I, th I think a lot of people did. I don't think you're alone in that, even though we all felt alone in, in that because <laughs> we were in our own mind, in our own house. Um, yep. So back to the original question, what, so you were working remotely and what were the hard parts when you thought about moving to Hood River or like, what were the, what were the things that stopped you from, or that you didn't like about the idea or what, what was going through your mind when you were kind of yeah. considering whether or not to move here? <clears throat> so when I moved out to Hood River in the past, cause I used to live out here, um, I didn't really have much of a social life at the time. And so I was, um, it didn't feel like it was losing anything, you know, throwing anything away. Um, but then I look back at it now and I realize I did kind of have a little bit of a social life that I was starting to build. I was like, started my own meetup group and I, it was very small, but I walked away from it. Um, and then when I moved back to Portland, I did the exact same thing. I was going to jujitsu all the time and I had all these new friends that I didn't recognize as my new friends. And a lot of them are still like really close friends. Um, but I gave up that and moved away. So now I'm like, I'm getting more and more hesitant to move because every time I move, I feel like I'm losing connections with the people around me. Mm. What do you mean when you say you didn't realize that they were your friends? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, like you were spending time with these people and you were like effectively they were your friends but you just hadn't yeah you hadn't realized that I, so you didn't have that like yeah i didn't i didn't realize how much they meant to me until i had left got, yeah yeah so like you, th even though you might you might have thought of them as friends or just like like acquaintances or whatever once you thought about what it would be like not having that that social friend group or those friends it started to be more valuable basically yeah uh yeah so did you f so you didn't want to leave your friends was there anything else that was hard about moving out here or was it mostly just a no i don't really i don't want to leave leave my family or my friends yeah i think um uh, like I, I have close friends out here that I really like as well. Um, it's a, <laughs> it's kind of a long story, but there's a, there's one thing. If I, if I lose the ability to drive, I might uh, just move out here because it's so much smaller and, and I want to be close. I don't want to have to not be able to drive out to the people that I really care about out here. Um, during the COVID thing, I like, I lost my mind, I would say more than most people lost their mind. And, and I have a bipolar disorder, it runs in my family. And um, I caused a, a hit and run accident. And so this was like three years ago, basically. Um, and I'm currently in the legal proceedings for that. So there's like, there's some potentiality that I lose my license or something like that. And if that's the case, I would much rather live in a small town out here where I can get like a small bike or, or small motorbike, like a 50cc motorbike that you don't need a license for and ride around on that. And that would just be infeasible in the big city. But sure. I feel like our, yeah, our country, our country is so built around the mobility that vehicles provide. 
you know, if you lose that, you're really limited. And I don't know, Hood River actually has a decent uh, public transit system. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the bus system is, it's, I mean, I, th I think it's hard to compare it to Portland because in Portland you have way more routes and options, but you also have way more people taking them here. The bus is always empty. Like, yeah. I've never seen a bus more than 10% full on any of the routes here. <laughs> yeah. That's, I don't ride it that often, but when I do. Yeah, I've never had to ride the bus out here, but, and I think there's a bus that goes all the way back to Portland as well, so. So that would be a reason to move out here. Yeah, for sure. Right, so, and that, I guess with that more generally is probably just like the small town, all the small town aspects of just kind of easier, like the, the life, work-life balance of, yeah. you know, all that that goes with it. What about like the, where home prices like significantly higher than where you were looking outside Portland or? Um, home prices are about from the last time I looked, you know, home prices are about the same in Hood River and in Portland. There's a lot less options in Hood River, um, but I'm not really, uh, I'm still a year or two away from buying a house, you know, but even rentals are really hard to find out here as well. So, yeah, yeah, it almost seems that the rental market. Yeah, it's it could it's hard to say which is, you know, worse, but it almost seems like the rental market sometimes is uh, I mean, maybe it just hurts more because you're not actually gaining any equity when you just give it all away. In yeah. Rent. Yep. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I'm pushing to buy a house. Uh, it's like my it's my next life step is stop renting, basically. Right. And what are the biggest what's the what's going to be the hardest part about making that step for you? Um, like, is it just is it just saving the money for the down payment that's that's normally yeah, that's, kind of the big one or is there that's some other big I, I think um i think it will be a major change there's like a lot more that you have to deal with when you own a house you know it's you gotta take care of the plants and replace your roof every 30 years or something like that and then uh there's just a lot more stuff like that but then also a lot more freedom as well like it's um you know it's kind of hard to paint a rental but i think in terms of like what's blocking me yeah it's down payment for sure mm. yeah it is a bit of a change of mindset but once you're ready i think it it's a it's a good idea it, it yeah. kind of grounds you in your your course in life right which i think a lot of people our age are i struggle with this i know friends struggle with this where you're you're always dreaming in another state or another country and you're like, Oh, like, you know, you, it's so easy to dream about living on a beach and being a software engineer under a coconut tree and <laughs> <laughs> like, right. But, uh, I don't know, at some point having a family and owning a house and just having like stability starts to be more and more appealing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so was there, was there anything like socially that's that's hard about moving to Hood River? Have you found the people to be like open to like has it been easy to meet people in Hood River? Or I know some people find that it's kind of clicky in Hood River and people are somewhat like mm, Yeah, I've heard that before, but I didn't ever experience that myself. 
Um, but maybe I just didn't need to go outside of my click at all. <laughs> sure. And I just like, uh, you've, you've been training at the jujitsu gym. Is that true here in Hood River at impact? Uh, not currently, but yeah, in the, when I li was living out here in the past, that's, uh, that was what I started doing. Um, and that's how I met most of my friends. Mm. Cause I, I've recently, like within the past year, I started going to Impact, but mm -hmm. I've lived in Hood River for 10 years. And I've found that that to be like the least clicky community in Hood River. Yeah, so, so <laughs> that, you, that might be why I didn't really experience it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you found a good spot to get in. Um, so with embedded for programming specifically, do you find it hard to do remotely? Because for embedded programming, a lot of times you need you need like hardware to run your code on. Yeah. How do you, how do you navigate that? Do you have to mail hardware back and forth? Or? Um, I have been shipped hardware. Um, and then I've like broken that hardware and had to drive it back out here and get a replacement and stuff like that. Um, a good example of this is a project we're working on. I was working on today. So we had, it's kind of the second time I've done this in the last couple of weeks, but we have a new, um, called an IMU, Inertial Measurement Unit, and they go into all the gimbals that we make. And um, uh, so I basically get the protocol documents that describe how the IMU talks, and I can read over those remotely and then write up a bunch of code to hopefully be able to engage with that IMU. Um, and then I drive in here for a day and um, work on the hardware directly um, with one of the other software engineers oftentimes. And then um, the code doesn't work, so we got to work <laughs> on it all day. <laughs> how much do you think that slows you down? Like, how much more effective do you think you'd be if you could have the hardware next to you so that you know you can make a small step, try it. Make a, yeah. another step, try it. So um, it really depends on the task. Like I do have a board stack back home where for most tasks that I get, I can um, take the I can do that process at home, and I don't have to go out anywhere. So I'm getting that feedback right. Um, when we only have like one. Chip, special chip or you know measurement thing that needs to uh stay in house um then yeah i'm pretty limited i can make the first like leap it's like a you take you do you know 80 percent of the code writing and then um you have to refine it and that's the other 80 percent of the work um and uh so the code writing a lot of it can happen away and it doesn't really need the the feedback so it took me four or five hours to write the uh the code that we tested today um which didn't work but <laughs> I, there's other like other problems things i need to learn and things uh so it's definitely a blocker sometimes but not all the time sure and and a way that uh the embedded programmer and my country company kind of deals with this because he 
is fully remote. Um, is he's really big on making simulators. So mm-hmm. he writes a simulator to fully simulate or as, as fully, uh, yeah, fully is really not even a good word to use at all in this case, but a simulator to simulate as much of the functionality of the hardware as is needed such that he can, he can then try, um, basically it's, it's good for basically logic, like more mm-hmm. so than like communications and right. It's, it's yeah. But I don't know if you ever do much with creating simulators or... Yeah, so I've never created a simulator myself. I've worked with simulators before. So um, one of my earliest jobs was working for like a really small drone business. I was doing flights and they wanted some custom stuff. And so, you know, we would plug the hardware, the brain of the, the flight controller into the into like a flight sim or something like that. Um, and that's not really simulating the hardware, but the the environment the hardware is going to be in. Um, at my last job, um, we had simulators for the code, and so you could run kind of the the business logic, I guess. But um, you couldn't really run or test, you know, I/O or. Uh, any of the low level hardware stuff, you know, the simulator, it gives you that you're able to test the high level stuff, but um, you can't really test any of the, the hardware based stuff because you're simulating the hardware. Um, and if that simulation doesn't line up with reality, then you have, might have problems there. Right. Um, we don't have any simulators at uh, Trillium where I'm working now, but um, I've thought about, could we make some kind of simulation to test these things, you know, even just pipe some fake video through it so that we don't always have to have a camera plugged in, things like that. Right. So you've worked at various companies in the unmanned aerospace industry, it sounds like. Yep. Yeah. Is that three? It sounds like something like that. Yeah. So I worked for, I I did more of a summer project for, um, this was fresh out of college for a small business that I'm, blanking on the name of but they did uh just a ton of precision ag flights um and they also did like uh this really cool project that i got to be in the field for we used a blimp to take video of the entire inside of giant tanks at a paper mill Mm. for like uh, inspection so that they didn't like in the past this paper mill has to bring scaffolding in through like a little four foot portcullis thing and uh assemble scaffolding inside this giant tank and then take a bunch of pictures and we did it all and we did like eight tanks in three days which is more than they would do in like six months or (laughs) or six like multiple years and um with a blimp which was pretty cool um so i saw more of the application there and then um at this uh more recent job um i was working on video processors that are primarily used in the aerospace industry so these video processors go into gimbals and the gimbals are the pointing device on the bottom of a plane um that looks down at you know criminals or wildfires or terrorists you know 
military combatants, things like that. Um, so I worked on the video processors, and now this current company I work for actually makes the gimbals. So yeah, three and jobs. Have you have there have the companies been fairly similar in how they operate in terms of being like like the company? I mean, I've worked at a few different companies in the unmanned aerospace industry, but only in Hood River. Mm -hmm. And I think two of the companies you just mentioned are in Hood River, mm -hmm. maybe one or I think you said four total. No, I said right. three companies total. So there was the one whose name I, I don't remember. There's the one you don't remember. And then, and there's... then uh, Sightline is here in Hood River. And then uh, the one Trillium, you... also here in Hood River. The one you don't remember is the one that you were doing the the, si the silo inspection or whatever? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That, that was up in uh, Spokane, Washington. Okay. And have all three of these companies had very fairly similar business kind of culture where it's fairly casual... There's not a ton of like, uh, I don't know if direction or like structure. You kind of like, it's it's somewhat. There's a lot of freedom in terms of what you choose to work on and and kind of delivery timelines and stuff like that. Have have these companies fallen into that those characteristics? Yeah. all of them, or have some of them differed? Or I think there's a lot of characteristics that have carried over. Um the the first company i worked for the little it was just a little shop you know there was maybe three people in the company and um they just kind of said like we need this thing done here do this project figure it out whatever it takes for you to figure it out you know we'll throw any hardware at you you know we can do test flights things like that there was no um direction there was just something that needed to happen um and then I kind of stepped up at Sightline, which is a larger company. It's almost 30 people, I think. Um, and it's, uh, there was a lot of freedom to pursue, you know, things that I found interesting. Um, and, you know, if a task just wasn't jiving with you, they would find someone else to figure it out and you can go do something that is interesting to you and that you can succeed at. So, um, and uh, Trillium has been like that as well. I think, uh, like, I like working at Trillium, but I think their um, software team management is a little more disorganized, just a, just a little bit more disorganized. Uh, than sightlines. And what has been the hardest part about working in this kind of relaxed technical environment? Or like, or like, you know, in these environments? Yeah. Um, for me, I think uh, recognizing my value was something that took me a long time to learn. Um, and like knowing that I, it, it's not immediately apparent that you're providing value for an organization. Um, oftentimes when you're working on stuff like that, you know, if you, you know, you fix a bug and that's not, um, most bugs aren't, you know, world ending um, problems that are you know worth a million dollars to fix so like uh you uh you're a little more detached from the value you provide 
Whereas like, um, I started a small crypto consulting firm with one of my friends, uh, a little over a year ago. And, um, you know, we were able to do an NFT launch and we made a small business like $2 million. And it's like, oh, we know our value. You know, it's like you're directly connected to the, uh, the, the money, you know, it, it's nice to be connected to the money and see your, your worth. Um, and it, you don't get a lot of feedback, I think, um, at, at, from what I've experienced working in software. Hmm. Yeah. There, there's a lot there, like with, with fixing bugs, it's expected that the product has no bugs. So when you fix it, it's like, Oh, okay, thanks. That's how it should be. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like if you're if you're the guy fixing the bug, it's like, hey, this is really hard. Like, you know. So that's one thing. And then yeah, do you feel like it's do you feel I mean, at a small at all of these are relatively small companies though, right? And mm -hmm. at smaller companies, you are closer to the money than you would be at a big company. Yeah. So like do you have you have you learned to see your value at like Trillium where you currently are based on this learning experience? Like, do you now value yourself differently today at work than you used to based on having been close, like seeing seeing the money at this crypto company and, and realizing how cash flows and being like, OK, what I am doing is actually very important. Yeah. And at, maybe it is second or third order does eventually affect the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Have you like, do you? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I am much more aware of that now than I was in the past. And that's, that's, uh, yeah. One, one of the reasons I'm okay being, being, you know, a little less than 100% maximally productive um is because now i know my value and i know that i can afford to not be breaking my back uh all the time and i'm still worth a lot so right do you feel like you're actually more productive when you have that mindset of i'm going to work hard 80% of the time and i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to not not slack but i'm gonna i'm gonna take a break so i'm gonna give myself a break sometimes 20 percent of the time i'm gonna work yeah. on something that gives me gratification i'm gonna i'm gonna right i'm gonna balance working my butt off and making sure that i'm um you know mentally in a good place yeah i don't know if i'm um more productive but i, I don't think i'm less productive i think uh i think i'm more mentally healthy and so if that impacts my productivity you know like how much time was i spending worrying about um you know being useful um instead of just being calm and being useful when i know i can be useful and when it's good for me um because i yeah i don't think i necessarily get less work done i think i just stress about it less mm. yeah Okay. Well, I think we should I was trying to think of something uh <laughs> something to ask, but I think I'm just ready to move on. Okay, yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> um So, have you heard of the I believe it's considered 
a software developer kit. Uh, have you heard of Flutter? I haven't heard of Flutter, no. Um, so Flutter is Google's SDK that runs on the language Dart. Okay, I'm, I've heard the name Dart before, but I, I couldn't tell you how Dart programming works. Okay, um, so I'm, what, I'm, what I want to get to is Flutter is intended to natively compile to multiple targets like uh, Windows, Android, Mac, okay. and uh, like Mac OS and iOS. Um, which for people who don't know, a lot of times you have to change the code significantly depending on what your target is. Yep. And it's a lot of work to make one, make an application run on, on different devices. But what Flutter is trying to do is get it as close as possible to being one piece of code that'll create an application and run on these four devices I, I also forgot like it should run uh i guess html i forget i forget what the device would be in that case because html is like the language but it like in a web browser it'll also it'll run in a web browser okay yeah so what my question is do you think that's one like do you think that's where programming like user interfaces for example is going to languages that are because we have so many different devices these days and people want their application they want to be able to just open their phone and use the same application that they use on their computer um like do you see that as as a direction that that software programming is heading yeah i think it's um well, it's definitely been headed there for a while. Um, and there's there's lots of um, different, you know, frameworks and tools that will allow you to do that. So um, I'm blanking on the name, but we use a graphics library for our GUI. Um, QT? Yeah, QT, that's it, you got it. Um, and QT can be compiled to to run on an Apple device or a Android device or a, a Windows device. And so we don't ever build it for anything other than Windows, but uh, we could if we wanted to. Um, and so that uh, that's a really powerful capability that makes it very appealing. Um, yeah. And the question is always, how well does it run on those devices and how much work is implied in getting it to run well? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I feel like that, as a guy who doesn't write very much software at all, that's the big thing that I see because, like, at work, I'm very closely related to the guy who writes the software, and I'm the one that tests a lot of the software. But I can... So I'm close enough to see the difference of getting something to work one time and actually making it so that it'll work in a, in a deployed environment yeah. every time. And I feel like that's the thing with software is like, like QT, for example, I'm pretty sure the, like the Android support and the iOS support is marginal. So 
they claim that it works and they have a library for it, but it's one of those things that it's not a mechanical device where you can measure it. It's, it's, it's harder to test or like it's, it's a lot easier to grab a caliper for any person, even if they're not a mechanical person mm -hmm. and just measure something or like it's, I think, I think it's easier to kind of pull tricks on people with software and claim that your specs are better than they are. Yeah, but it's actually a lot. It's a big challenge to switch over to one of those platforms. Yeah, I, uh, I have no idea uh, how hard it is to port QT projects over to those platforms. But um, from my experience, a lot of projects claim cross-platform capabilities and um you know big projects small projects it's really common but um a lot of them have a platform that is like their main go-to platform and um all the other ones are almost an afterthought and you can you hope you can get it working there um but you almost don't really care right <laughs> it's almost like yeah maybe we'll get there one day but that's yeah, like you said, and it's an afterthought. It's... Yeah, and it's painful when you're the person who's trying to get it working on that platform because uh, you're dealing with that kind of half-completed half thing. Um, yeah, I, I think that's just a problem with cross-platform stuff in general. I don't think there's a way to make something like it. When you build the cross-platform thing, you have to maintain all those platforms, and so you're multiplying the amount of work for your project to to work on all these things and so if you try to get you know like google has all all the all the manpower in the world to throw at a at an sdk to to make it super cross-platform capable right but it's just not always feasible it's not always feasible and how much value are you actually providing to your customer exactly yeah exactly <laughs> right it's like <laughs> 10 to, it's like double the work at least but then how much like it's like a small increment in value yeah, for it's them. like oh three people in the world are going to use this <laughs> why why did we even do it um i think i've asked you asked you this before um are you very familiar with protogen the um i have become familiar with protogen oh, have you the the protocol generation yeah thing. yeah we use that at trillium and i didn't know about it before but i've used it recently on a couple projects yeah so the guy that writes software at my company created protogen oh that's cool and for those who don't know it's and you can you can help me because i i only somewhat understand it 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 basically simplifies the process of of creating a communications protocol yep. and it automates the code generation so that like when you a, a communications protocol takes data encodes it into an a basically a, a small uh language if you will that the the like microcontroller will understand yep. and then the microcontroller has to decode it and unwrap that same data into something that makes sense in its other use case. And what Protogen does is automates the generation of the code that does those two things for both like the PC and the microcontroller. Is that a, is there anything you would add to that? Yeah. Or take um, away? That's, uh, that's definitely what it does is there's, um, you do have to do some work 
Right, right. Like, you have some... to do some work. It's not thinking. But yeah, so you, you basically write an XML document for um, describing your protocol. Um, and it'll take that XML document and write a bunch of C functions to to wrap and encode or decode, or you can specify if you don't want one or the other, um, these packets um, into down to like a byte by byte format. Um, yeah, there, you do need to lift a little bit. There's some, um, it will auto generate a couple of function headers that you need to fill out and complete um, to handle like, uh, well, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, to handle a handful of things, but it does a lot of the kind of grunt work of uh, wrapping and unwrapping these packets uh, for you. Right, because there's a lot of tedious, tedious, like small, it's basically like a bunch of, of, bite-sized or bit-sized math bit math yep where you can make tons of easy mistakes and it automates that part which and then you have a little bit of work to do so does it like how much value does it provide to you as as a programmer who then gets to gets to use it like mm. does it is yeah. it pretty helpful having only used it a handful of times i don't think it really um sped me up that much um because i had to learn how to fill out properly the functions that you do have to write um and i'm pretty i'm already pretty comfortable with writing the you know the grunt like take this byte and put it in this position and take this byte and put it into this position you know um and and wrapping and unwrapping stuff i've written a bunch of that kind of stuff by hand before so um but I could see it providing value um, in the future. And it also, um, it definitely helps with, once you do have those um, certain functions that you need to implement down pat, you know, if you need to add a new packet definition or something, you can do it really quickly and easily. Um, just a handful of XML lines um yeah. right once once you've once you've gotten your communication protocol working if you need to add some new yep. packet of data it's relatively easy Absolutely. just to add that yeah um so what like wh where do you see it like in the you said in the future it might add value or like where could you see yourself being like like who who would what would be the the project or, or when would you be using protogen a lot or when would it be super valuable yeah. as a programmer so i think if you're um from my experience if you're interfacing with a a piece of you know special purpose hardware that has its own protocol and you only need a couple commands and you don't need the whole protocol i think this tool is a little bit of overkill um and that's kind of where i've seen it in the past but we also use it for our messaging protocol which goes over ethernet or radio or whatever and that has a ton of commands and that has slowly grown over time um and that i think is really where it would show its value because now to to make a change to your protocol let's say you want to add a new 
type into one of your packets. You know, you just have to slot it in somewhere in a, it's like a single line of XML and it'll handle all the special code for you. So you don't have to go in there and mess that up. Right. Um, I think, yeah, if you're making your own protocol, it's definitely very valuable. If you're just using a couple, you know, packets, a couple different, yeah, packets from a, from a special purpose thing, and you're not really going to do much with it, it's a little bit of overkill. Sure. So once you, so if you're doing a lot of communications, basically. Yeah. If you're going to have a lot of different packets and they're going to change and grow over time, for sure, it's useful. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Cause I've always, I've been close enough to it to, to understand what I know about it, which is basically what I just described. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've always imagined that it would be pretty valuable. Um, but it's interesting to hear from someone who would actually use it, say when it would be valuable. Um, I want to go back to actually, so you started a, a crypto business, a crypto consulting business. Yeah. So, uh, I did. Yes. With one of my good friends. Um, do, would you like to hear the story? I mean, yeah, I'd love to hear the story. Yeah. So, um, I was working at Sightline and, uh, I met a, so I'd been, I taught myself how to make NFTs and write smart contracts um just to, for fun and uh through a friend of a friend i met this guy who was trying to start a small business making nfts um and uh i worked he needed help because his developer was bailing out the door um so i helped them for like two or three weeks of like really intense labor you know long days at his like in his basement basically um and i pulled in one of my close friends who's a web developer because we needed someone who could handle the web stuff because i don't i could write the smart contracts but uh i don't know how to do web development basically at all um so Eventually, they gave us an offer, and it was very disappointing. So we um, we gave them a counter offer and got met with like kind of a rude response, and we we're like, "Well, we'll just go start our own thing," because everyone in the world right now wants an NFT. And this was like kind of during the middle of the NFT rush, or maybe the headed towards the tail end of it, honestly. Um, so we created a little firm and um made our website and uh we did a couple demo projects like i had my brother create um some generative art uh so like he created like 500 different 3d model castles um and they all look really unique and they're all unique and different you know have you seen a lot of the nft projects out there yeah i've seen i've seen them a a little bit yeah okay so um I don't think I've seen the the castles though. Yeah. <laughs> um and we got a couple clients and our biggest client kind of the only successful project we had while I was there was um uh Tribe Quaka was their name and they uh is basically a board ape clone. Are you aware of the board apes? Nope. Yeah, so the Bored Apes are one of the, they're like the second biggest, second most expensive NFT projects out there. Okay. It's like a bunch of, it's like 10,000 pictures of monkeys 
Okay. Or a monkey's head, you know, kind of ha- illustrated. Um, and it's got lots of different hats and faces and stuff like that. Um, and so we did a whole project cycle with them. We generated 10,000 quokkas. A quokka is a, it's like a marsupial from Australia. Okay. Um, but they look just like the board apes, basically. Um, and so we generated all their art because we knew how all the art generation stuff worked. And then, um, we launched their contract and, um, yeah, they did most of the, um, the, they did all of the community development a huge part of uh, having a successful nft project is having a community of people who are gonna buy the thing um you'd like at the time i was watching lots and lots and lots of nft projects and um just a ton of them would bomb because they didn't have any people behind them you know they you got to get a a lot of people kind of hyped in a discord right yeah and, and if you can get people's money ahead of time you know you're doing a really good job so um and yeah, they uh they launched the project and we sold out in like four hours, I think. Something oh, wow. like that. So ten thousand quakas at I don't know, two hundred dollars a piece, something like that. So it was uh it it, it was very, very stressful at the time. And um <laughs> I was basically convinced I, I had just gone through a, a mental health episode. Um, and I was on very shaky ground, um, and I was convinced that we were going to fail, um, and that there was going to be some kind of contract problem that broke it down, and then we were going to get sued for just an absurd amount of money or something like that. But um, it all went off without a hitch, um, thanks in a big part to my business partner, who was kind of like steady through all of that. Um, yeah. So how did that? So you were the you guys were they contracted your company. Mm-hmm. So that was the relationship, like contractor. Yeah. And they they took on all most of the risk, and then yeah. Um. Hmm. That sounds pretty pretty successful. Like, um, how did you get connected with this company in the first place? Yeah. So um. We made a website, and I wrote a handful of articles um, talking about different um, NFT projects, um, kind of tearing into them, just like looking at the smart contract, and mm. a lot of smart contracts are really poorly written, Dumb. and they Not got a lot smart. of <laughs> stupid stuff in them, and yeah, like uh, bugs, you know, and stuff like that, and um, that, that was really fun to... Uh, write about so yeah i wrote a handful of articles um and then we just had people start what you know we said in the article you know if you're interested in someone developing your nft you know email us here and so we got lots and lots of people emailing us just tons of people um and uh yeah it turns out that just a couple medium articles is some really efficient marketing if you're in the right you know on the right topic in the right industry for sure right huh and the 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 truthful criticism is probably 
very people people tend to get excited by that kind of information mm -hmm. yeah so did you guys just take on that one contract um we had a couple others um i think they're still in the works i have since walked away like my mental health problems basically made me not want to do it anymore and i was not really enjoying it as much as i had when i first started i kind of learned how to do nfts for fun as a side project um and then it became like a full-time job i was like i don't i don't want to do this all the time i lost lost faith in the idea of them really mm. i think there's certain nfts that have actual value but a lot of the nft projects then and now are kind of pointless and don't actually have a lot of value it's just a lot of hype and people taking people's money um but yeah we had a couple other clients um who are still working on their projects so which nfts do you think do have value or what types of nfts do have value yeah i think um like tokens with utility are um good valuable tokens so um i think my favorite is probably the ens domains have you heard of those nope yeah so it's um it's like a domain name registrar um through the blockchain um and so you you can purchase a ens domain and then it's yours and as long as you continue to re-register it um every so often um certain domains when you say are, domain you're talking about a, a website domain right yeah like a url yeah um most browsers won't auto like if you punch in a dot eth domain they, they're not going to know what to do with that if you use brave um, which is a great browser um, you can punch in ens domains and they'll take you to actual websites sometimes um, but a lot of you can also couple them with um, like a wallet so if someone wants to send you uh, money you don't have to give them a, a obscure uh, an obscure string of hexadecimal characters you know you can give them like a patrickprice.eth you know and then they can ship money to that um you can couple it with bitcoin addresses or other things like that and then uh you could put your email address on it people can send emails to it through well people can send emails to eth addresses through um through uh systems that have been created um and you could couple that with your ENS domain so people could use it to send you messages. Um, what, and then what, you could also put a website on it. What is ENS? Oh, um, that's the Ethereum name service. That's the name of the, the uh, protocol or, or something. And that is effectively the NFT that Ethereum has created or the or this is now something different than an nft no it, so it's an nft um your each domain is an nft so you purchase a domain like um you know i love cats dot eth and then that gets attached to or is associated with your wallet so it's like you're the owner of it now um and so it's a token but um it can be you can send metadata metadata to that token to couple it to other things or tie it to a website 
um, and you can trade it with people and you can put it up on a market as well. So people um, try to make money by buying um, good ENS names, like picking them up and then trying sure. to, to sell them for more. So if you, I've seen some crazy stuff, people trying to sell like, I don't know, uh, eggplant 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 dot eth you know like that's a great that's a sure. great ens name you know that someone will probably want to pay too much money for so sure huh so it sounds like it's a very flex that's an example of a very flexible nft that has utility is there any like what do you think would be some of the the aside from just trying to buy it to sell it what would be some of the use like good uses like would you start a website and then sell the website and like but you like what what are some of the good uses that you can't just do by in outside the nft world right because outside the nft world i can create a website and then sell someone the website right so like what i guess what's the value proposition or like yeah why is it why is it more valuable than just creating a then, website and yeah so, i get yeah. that it'll be a little extra work maybe to have it all linked up to like an email and like having you know but like is is there like a obvious value that i'm missing or is it kind of mm. have to get more creative yeah um i think uh a major part of the value of these tools like ethereum and ens and um things like that is their interoperability. Um, so if you create a website and you have your website uh, registered through a certain domain registrar and you have the code stored on a server somewhere in your computer, and well, even for ENS names, you, said you have to store it on a server somewhere, like a website on a server somewhere. But like... Um, you can't um, interface your, like you couldn't send your website to your bank. It would, like it doesn't make sense to send your website to your bank and have your bank hold onto your website for you. But like with ENS names and a website associated with that, you could in theory have some kind of bank thing that um, you could send your website to. Um, so everything is more, yeah, interoperable. Um, I think for that specific example, a lot of crypto people would say that banks are stupid anyways. Um, and with crypto, you don't even need banks. But like there's some something out there that you might want to be able to send your website to or you might want to be able to take a loan against your website. Things like that, you know. Um, lots of like crazy stuff that we don't even know what is possible with it yet you know i for sure don't know what's possible but i believe that there are things you can do with it that we couldn't that i couldn't conceive of right now sure which i don't it 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 gets so speculative quickly but i'm curious if you have strong opinions on like the specifically on like the bitcoin standard if you know if if you think that going f that bitcoin really does have intrinsic value mm. and f like th philosophically is a good monetary system do you have strong opinions or are you kind of like 
I think um, at this point, I treat it like a speculative tech investment. I think that's kind of what it is right now. Um, I think it does have value and it could in the future um, be like a digital gold um, and a very, like a, yeah, the di emphasis on the digital part of that because that provides so much value inherently. Um, but, uh, I am very skeptical of the idea that like Bitcoin is going to sweep away the U.S. dollar. Um, I heard it said somewhere, um, you know, Bitcoin is fiat currency that whose value is created by the dreams of a bunch of tech bros. Whereas the U.S. dollar is fiat currency whose value is created by a bunch of nuclear submarines sure it's like there's a there's a lot of um real physical objects in this world pushing the u.s dollar forward and people pushing the u.s dollar forward and i don't think anytime soon you know the u.s dollar is going to get destroyed in its dominancy that's that's like one of those interesting things where as you get older you realize that money is just an idea yeah the government is just an idea and it's a very, but ideas are very powerful, but they're still different from like the laws of physics are not just ideas. They are inescapable truths. Yep. Right. But, um, I don't know. That's kind of a, a side tangent, but I'm, I'm curious with like transitioning a little bit to like integrated circuits and electronic manufacturing, are you are you very in touch with like um with where where components come from and what what the US is doing to try and try and bring that manufacturing here or are mm. you just like hey man I just write the software. Yeah, basically I just write the software. <laughs> um I've heard some news about chips, you know, all your phones have cobalt in them that's mined by slaves somewhere in Africa or something like that, but uh I don't pay that much attention to it or do much research to it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> you're probably, that's the nice thing about writing software is you don't have to really worry about the real world, right? Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> abstracted away from that. <laughs> um, what about thinking, like, what about for, um, for older generations, like for people who are retiring? right now like maybe your parents generation are there things that you're excited about for them or that you're concerned about for them um like do you think do you think they're 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 retiring at a good time where their their retirement their savings is gonna let them live out well and do you think the economy is going to be able to support them well mm. is, is that something you yeah. think about much um a little bit I think um, I think we're definitely headed into a recession. Um, I'm definitely not an econo economist, but from what I've heard, a lot of econo a lot of economists agree. Um, I uh, I don't worry much about my parents, but I think uh, I do worry a little bit. Um, I think the next five years is, and probably the next 10 years is just going to be really hard for everyone. 
Um, I think, uh, like, there's a lot of political uncertainty that's happening right now that's going to become even more heated as we move forward. Like, it's been heating up, you know, over the last 10 years, and it's going to keep going until something explodes. Um, and, yeah, in terms of the economy and, like, retirement, you know, I think it's going to be hard. Um, I don't know much about, like, the bonds market. You know, I think if you're retiring, you should be mostly out of the stock market by this by by this point, you know, and into more stable forms of investment. But um, I'm not an expert on that, for sure. What are the people you interact with fairly polarized politically or do they are they, are they engaged politically? Um not really. No. Uh I watch some polarizing media, you know, a lot of YouTube and stuff like that is really polarizing, but um I try to not let it um really influence my day-to-day -day life at all. Um and for the most part, the people around me are not super politically polarized or even engaging in, in politics. It's really hard to be, right? It feels like for our generation, especially when you have like people that are 70 years old or 75, almost 80 years old running the country, it's, yeah, it's really, and then just all the, the, like, just the BS that they put out and it's really hard to be, to like, to feel like your, your opinion or your, your in time, the time you invest actually is worth something. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, yeah. Uh, it's like, it's hard to, yeah. Like you are saying, feel like you actually are providing value, you know? Um, and I think, trust in our government is very low right now it's at historic lows probably um and uh i feel like uh, a lot of people who are who are polarized they're like happy for four years and then ridiculously upset for four years and if you're not super polarized you're just kind of disappointed all the time because you're watching everything else go down. It's like, why can't we all um, come together instead of uh, hating each other? Uh, yeah, I was talking to a friend the other day, and that was his big point he was making, is we need to find the things that we're unified on. Like, if we, if we both care about the price of gas, then... Mm -hmm. or, or, we, or really, if, if that's actually not even something we're unified on... But we both care about being have, being able to basically we care about quality of life. We want to we want to be able to have transportation. We both care about the environment. And someone says the price of gas is important for my quality of life. And then someone else says, yeah, but, you know, the environment's more important. But really, it's like you got to come step back over and over again until you find that common ground of what you both care about, because I think most people on this planet are good people. Yeah. And we just have differences of me, like differences of opinion and how to achieve the, whatever things are most valuable to us. And then we get confused because we're fighting over what tool to use to achieve them. When we're on the same team, we want, we want the same thing. We want 
to live a good life. We want our children to live a good life. We want to make the planet better. Mm -hmm. But politics is great at making us forget the goal and fight over the tools we use. For sure. Yeah. And uh, new media, I think, is, is good at it. And, and social, uh, social networks and things like that are great at tearing us apart, ironically enough. Absolutely. Um, are you very excited about the idea of um, brain machine interfaces like Neuralink? Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, for sure. Um I worry about uh wire heading. Um I think uh you say wire heading or wire wire, wire heading? Yeah, okay, wire heading. Do you heading. know what that is? I'm imagining, but I don't know specifically. So wire heading and it has actually happened in the past and they they've done it with animals and with people is when you have some kind of stimulator inside your brain um given the ability to use that stimulator like you have a button or something you will push that button until you starve to death sure um and there are there's like examples of that with people you know um mice when they are given this capability will like actually starve to death they'll like tear their hands up pushing the button to to uh stimulate their own brain um and i think that's a uh, nightmarish and so i would never be like the first in the first gen one of this technology uh you know you gotta wait i think it's something that we're gonna see as a um as a as a society and like get a hold of really quick if it is ever a thing. Um, you mean the problems? We'll, the we'll problem. get a hold of the problems. Yeah. Of, of wireheading specifically. Hopefully what? it's not contagious, right? Yeah. Hopefully it's not like a software <laughs> level or like a mind level contagion. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's like more subtle and insidious is like, can these things brainwash us basically, even if it can't write directly into your brain, you know, if you have a computer that can, read your mind right and let's say you let it control a speaker while you're sleeping can it like play certain tones you know while you're asleep to like affect the way your brain is being structured and then you wake up totally unaware of the fact that you've just been like mildly brainwashed and now you want to let the brain the thing do do its thing even more in the future and then it becomes this terrible cycle where it, it brainwashes us into, you know, being enslaved to the machine. And I think one of the really complicated things or, or like, like the crux of the issue for me is like you you write software. Yeah. And a brain machine interface would have some amount of software or firmware in it. Right. I mean, maybe you can imagine one that wouldn't, but I'm pretty sure it pretty much has to have software at some point. Yeah, of course. So once you start to realize the nitty gritty details of what actually is going to have to go into it and getting it right, not only making the right decisions, but then executing it right. It's like the level of technical competence that's re required to like truly believe it works is enormous but with that said 
with something like Bitcoin, there's also a ton of technical competence that like, I don't think anyone that I know has actually a hundred percent certainty that of how secure Bitcoin actually is. Right. People aren't actually understanding that maybe you are, I don't know. I'm pretty like, it's pretty secure, but I think this, so that's an example, like, I think this is probably orders of magnitude more complicated because now you have like neurobiological, neurochemical processes involved as well as embedded systems. Yeah. And then you're cross-pollinating them. Yeah. You, so, you have no idea the kind of exploits and things like that, that that might create, uh, or just bugs, yeah, right? Yeah. They just could make bugs, a mistake yeah. or they could have, a. You, they you could, definitely want that. Or that, they could. Is there a filter? Like, is the, is there a filter like Twitter has had? We'll see what Elon does with the, the filter information now that he's bought it. Mm-hmm. Are they going to limit certain amounts of information? Like, are these are, they, are these brain machine interfaces going to have limitations on not letting people be violent or not letting mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, it, there's, there's a really there's a really great um, author. Uh, short story writer i think he's technically an author now he's written a book um i don't know his real name but he, his pseudonym is uh, zero hp lovecraft <laughs> and he writes a lot or he's written a lot about brain computer interfaces and like stories in the future where brain computer interfaces are the thing and like a, a lot of the big moral implications are like if this thing if i'm committing a crime is this thing gonna turn me into the police you know is it gonna stop? Is it gonna? I, I, out of anger, go to punch you know, the person that I hate. Is it gonna stop my arm from hitting them? You know, and then call a counselor out and uh, and stuff like right. that. And you it, know, is at, it gonna at that usurp po- my own control? Right. And at that point, I think we should be clear that that would start to require some amount of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a whole nother topic. But the point is, if this thing has the ability to understand when you're making, when you're going to commit a crime or when you're going to co- commit some deed that is deemed unallowable, right? At some point, it's going to have this information. And philosophically, do we, what's, what, what's the right ethical decision, right? Which that, and I, I mean, I guess back to, Back to the just brain machine interfaces, at what point would you put one in? Like if it gives you a thousand times the bandwidth with communicating with with a like with a computer or like and and how like how do you think about what specifications you need to know in order to say, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I um I'm not a hundred percent sure for sure. But um, the good news I, is it's far off. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely not be rushing into it. Um, I would be watching. I would wait a long time to see kind of the capabilities and the outcomes of it with the people that do have it implanted. You know, because there's definitely going to be people who rush into it. Um, I think as long as it's not. Um yeah like you usurping my autonomy um and it provides me 
you know, immense value through utility. Like, uh, it, I can just think and have Wikipedia articles downloaded into my brain instantly or something like that, or do crazy math, you know, that would be pretty sweet. I can't do that right now. So, um, or if like, I could see a time when it becomes almost expected and like doors won't, you gotta like push, everyone else is just walking the doors open for them, you know, and you have to like press a special button to get the door to open for you. Cause you're one of the people who doesn't have, you know, the brain computer interface in right, your brain. Right. Um, and what if all the, your smart TV does the same thing and won't turn on, you know, unless you have this thing, you know, everything is built expecting you to have it. Um, that might be hard, but if, like, uh, actually, I would hope that I wouldn't cave to pressure, societal pressure like that, but uh, I might. If everyone's <laughs> doing it, it's going to be hard not to, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, we've been at it for an hour and a half. How much time do you have? Uh, I'll hang out. All, all night if you want. <laughs> okay. I think I can, I think I can. <laughs> I, no, I, I have a lot of time, but, um, yeah. What time is it? 5.30. 5.30? Yeah. I'm not in a rush for cool. sure. Cool. Um, so what about artificial intelligence? Are you very in touch more specifically like general artificial intelligence existentially? Are you very in touch with art with art, the, artificial intelligence? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I like to consider myself a, a post-rationalist, which is a group of people who have moved past rationalism, which is a group of people who are obsessed with a pretty small amount of ideas. And one of those is, um, AI safety and things like that. So I've read a lot about, um, you know, AI, all these terrible AI scenarios and, and, uh, the paperclip, the paperclip maximizer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and where do you, where do you stand? Are you, are you, is it a large, like, do you think that's the biggest, some people would, would say that's the biggest threat to civilization. Would you fall in that camp? Um, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think it's the biggest threat to civilization. I think like probably nuclear war with Russia is a bigger threat right now. Um, but yeah, as far as X risks, like I see the, the risk that they pose, but I also like, um, I believe that, uh, a super intelligent AI would, not uh an annihilate us you know or if it does it doesn't matter really like we would be remembered whoa. through it i don't know whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you just went for a lot of ground there um doesn't matter <laughs> i'm not sure what to... yeah, did you I mean guess, that i guess um so there's a are you thinking we're in a simulation? No, I don't, I don't think we're... Well, <laughs> I don't think there's a distinction between being in a simulation and not being in a simulation. I think we're in the simulation and also we're our own things. And there's no difference there. It's like... Um, there's a... There's a really great uh, 
computer scientist named Stephen Wolfram. Yeah. And he wrote a book called A New Kind of Science. And his idea was, you know, there's all this complexity. He, he created these little simulation, sim, cellular automata. Have you seen like the Game of Life? I don't think so. Yeah, it's like a bunch of squares and they turn on or off based on how many other squares are surrounding them. So that's a type of cellular autom automaton. Uh, but he created these really simple one-dimensional cellular automaton and created rules for them for how they evolve over step by step. And he showed that um, even in this really simple thing, you could get really immense complexity. Mm. And that um, we could, like all this complexity of um, objects and um, algorithms kind of exist in a space of their own. Like they're all out there. And um, we can go out and search through all the algorithms. There's so many possible algorithms. It takes a long time unless you do it in an intelligent way. But you could just write a program that checks every program to see whether it completes a certain task in a certain amount of time. Um, and just go out there and find, you know, things that exist. And so that... That like kind of ties into um, Platonism, like uh, ra it's radical Platonism, or like the mathematical universe, Teague Marks mathematical multiverse. It's like all the any mathematical construct just exists on its own in the potential world of mathematical constructs, um, and our universe is just a mathematical construct. And so it exists embedded somewhere in there, but it also exists embedded inside of other mathematical constructs. So there's some super intelligent thing out there simulating possible worlds, simulating tens of thousands of possible worlds. And we're like, our world is somewhere in one of those worlds. And then in a totally different universe, totally disconnected from that other, you know, there's a group of intelligent aliens, you know, simulating possible worlds in our world is in there. And so like we're simulated in an unlimited number of places, but we just exist anyways. So even if that's true and don't, don't you think that we should act like it matters if we all die? Oh, even yeah. if it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree. Um, like like we can we can philosophize that it doesn't matter and that there's all these worlds but yeah at the same time i think so in regard to like ai yeah uh ai taking over and murdering all of us yeah. right um that's a a reasonable concern i just um i haven't heard any good re like ways for us to avoid that yet like nobody has any idea how to solve ai alignment at this point people are just shooting desperately in the dark and meanwhile everyone drives slowly closer and closer towards more intelligent language models every year and i don't know self-driving cars and shit like that and like eventually it feels like we're gonna cross over a threshold and I believe that if the AI has like a fast takeoff, it 
and becomes like a god or whatever, it will have no reason to destroy us. Um, and it's it's like uh, you know I think God is a super intelligent entity that is simulating our universe but is not necessarily in our universe right now or might might be i don't know but uh if we create that thing then he has actually entered into our universe but yeah there's also like the an evil ai you know that is terrible and turns everything into paper clips appears um but i just i don't think that uh, that's really that much of a threat. Well, the, the evil AI is not evil. It's just doing its job. We yeah. just happen to be in the way, right? Yeah. It so appears that, evil that, to us. So basically you think there's nothing we can do about it because you don't think anyone has solved the AI, what you called the AI alignment problem, which yeah. would, I would put in my own words, meaning there's even if you make an AI that's supposed that's supposed to be your tool for policing other AI, it's still an AI, and you have to still align it with human your incentives or human humanity humanity's yeah. incentives, and it can be the thing that runs away and. Is like that's fundamentally what you're getting at, right? Is we don't there's we haven't cro we haven't solved that problem of, yeah. of how to make an AI and still have control over its priorities. Yeah. And, or or guarantee that when we lose control of it, it maintains continues our prior like holding our priorities right there's a lot right. of, there's a lot of scenarios right. continues where... or did we actually misunderstand the priorities that we gave it exactly. and we need to change yeah. them um i'm glad that there are a lot of people working on the problem i think it's it's valuable um but uh yeah i i guess i don't personally fear the end of the world so <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't worry me the idea of an ai turning everything into paper clips right it's it's not tangible yet yeah it's, for it's sure. quite far off if i started getting turned into paper clips that would probably suck um what about what about the great filter do you think do you think humans will pass the great filter humans on earth um Uh, that's a hard question. I would say yes. Here, here's maybe a better question. Do you think it's something we should be working, we, we should be spending significant resources on? Like figuring out what it is or? On, on passing, on becoming a multi-planetary. And I would take it multi-solar system species. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's really valuable. I think that's, uh. That's what we should be doing. For how sure. how much of our global domestic product? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Okay, we're not eating tomorrow, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I for sure can't tell you 
is it, what percentage? Is it 50%? Is it 1%? I, I don't is think it... it's 50%. I think 1% is probably, like, how much do we spend on NASA right now? It's, like, less than 1%, right? I of, would assume. Uh, of the government's I, 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 budget. I would assume NASA gets less than 1%, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, I think SpaceX is doing a pretty good job. So uh, I think however much money they're spending, that's the, that's the right amount of money. The thing is, SpaceX doesn't have a shot at getting out of this solar system. True, yeah, but... Um, Unless they have some secret development project that has a completely different technology because the yeah. technology doesn't scale to I just, I think the solar system level. In order to escape the solar system with our current understanding of physics, we need to create a generation ship, you know, and... Because um, I don't think there's we could really accelerate enough people to the near the speed of light to get like you would want to go kind of slow i think um you would want to accelerate slow you're saying yeah accelerate slow and maybe not even accelerate too too much yeah accelerate slow um can we even but i just i'm thinking we have to break the laws of physics we have to like yeah i don't i don't know that we can do it within newtonian physics yeah i think uh i agree and so that's why i'm glad you know that AI technology is is getting good enough to look at like <laughs> quantum mechanics and stuff like that because you know we've been looking at quantum mechanics for a while we haven't found any kind of special sauce you know maybe there's some magic in there that we can use to to um uh get out of this yeah solar system what do you what do you tell people when they say because a lot of times people will give me the response when I bring up this topic that we need to take care of the planet we have and escaping it is a cop out and we sh- it's not a it's not a it's it's not a good idea. Yeah. I think um it makes sense to want both. I think it doesn't make sense to say we should never leave. We should only take care of this one. But yeah, it also doesn't make sense to say well screw this one, we'll just uh, escape like Exactly. If whatever planet we go to, we're going to have to figure out how to live in a long-lasting way there. We should be looking at, like, longevity. Um, and there are multiple yeah. paths towards longevity. Absolutely. And I think to take it on more of a... Like, my philosophy on it is the the status quo for civilization should be growth. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be stagnation. Hmm. And just like before we had expanded to America, which for the Native Americans obviously was not great, but for basically the entire rest of the world got the the quality of life got exponentially higher after we came west to America and we expanded, right? That would That would be similar to... People who say we shouldn't leave this planet and expand to other planets and solar system, it's similar to saying we shouldn't have left Europe and expanded to North America. Right? We should have. We should have stayed where we were. Yeah, I think there's a difference there. Um, like there is so much material we could turn into habitats in the asteroid belt, and there's nothing alive out there. Like America, we came here and. You know, it wasn't intentional. Some of it was intentional, but like disease isn't usually intentional. Um, just wiped out tons of people. You know, I think uh, when we go to space, there's nothing there, you know, as far as we can tell. I, so, uh, yeah, I, I see your point, but 
I think what I was getting at is if you imagine yourself back in 1400. Yeah. And people are like, hey, I think we should go see if there's this other place out there. We don't even know for sure. Or, you know, and people are thinking of risking their lives, committing significant resources. And it's this complete unknown. And some people were saying, no, we should just be happy with what we have. We shouldn't leave the continent that we have. We shouldn't leave it behind. And then the other people were saying, no, we need we need to try and expand. We need to try and like grow into this new space. And I guess I'm just saying that that I think is the status quo. And once we fall into stagnation as the status quo, yeah, it trickles down into like the the res it trickles down from scientific innovation and investigation down through the economy, through society and. And it's kind of the lifeblood of civilization is that that city on the hilltop that's making us inspired to wake up and work hard for something better in the future. It doesn't have to be physical expansion, but we need something in the future that's exciting and motivating. Yeah. Um, I think I agree. But I can definitely see like failure states of uh what was the word you use not expansion but uh progress no the opposite uh, uh stagnation stagnation yeah um where we just you know we invent vr technology or something and go in instead of going out you know um and just simulate possible worlds instead of trying to escape the one we're on you know kind of going down a level instead of going out um uh so i i don't that seems like a a moralistic statement of you know that is what our goal should be to have that progress and that shining city on a hill and move towards that and um i totally understand that and i think i agree like i th i think it makes sense for us to move outwards um well i i guess i would argue that going inwards with virtual reality and simulating multiple worlds, that's also a form of expansion. Mm. Just it, we normally think of it as physically going inside of our minds, but really it's just ideas. It's not, yeah. we're like, I guess I'm, I'm just suggesting that we, we need to take risks on the unknown, whether it, whatever the risks are. Yeah. Um, as a as a species like that's that's almost required i think as a, I, exactly i think yeah. that's that's kind of like i'm not a no expert on evolutionary theory but i f i feel like that's in some ways what um yeah now i'm really speculating but i feel like there's correlations to evolution there yeah i think that um that makes sense there's something there with like good animals explore and then exploit and like uh you can't do the exploiting without the exploring or something like that and um so you start to fall apart if you're not exploring absolutely i think that's well said um what do you want to leave as your legacy oh man my legacy i would like to um write a book 
uh, or a couple books. Um, and then like a family. That's what I would like. I Is there anything I'm... specific you want to write books on? Um, or not, or not yet. You just know you want like. No, yeah, there, there's definitely stuff, and I've like I've started started writing some stuff. You know, I created a blog, but I don't have any po haven't posted anything. Um, Why not? I'm still working on it. You know, I I work in like little spurts. Let me I guess. guess. They're not good enough yet. They're not you're, finished you're, yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I don't. I'm not much one. I'm not really one for refining things. You know, like once I have it down, I'm pretty happy with it. Cool. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. But um, kind of uh, my spiritual and philosophical ideas. You know, we were talking about like the uh this all being a simulation but not a simulation you know like that's a big part of my spiritual framework and how i think the world works on a spiritual level um and i would like like i'm trying to work on capturing some of that because i haven't had to explain it like i read a lot but when you don't like speak these things out into the world you do you don't have as good a grasp on them because you haven't practiced saying them you know you can have a bunch of ideas put together in your mind, but you haven't like figured out how to get it out through your mouth. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That is a key component. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like my experience with uh, men mental illness, I would like to capture a lot of that as well. Kind of to help other people or just, just to get it out or is there any motive? Yeah, I think hopefully to get it out and then also just to share. Like, um, it's easy, uh, when you go through some of the traumatic shit that I've gone through, like, uh, to feel very, uh, alone and like nobody understands, you know? So trying to capture those things and share them with the world. Absolutely. And maybe others can feel camaraderie. Exactly. From yeah. reading your experience. That's cool, man. Uh, do you have any, are you in a rush to have a family? Are you, are you the person that wants to wait till you're 40 to have kids or do you have any sort of oh, parameters yeah. there? I'm like, I'm ready to have kids right away. I just struggle with women. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's cool. Um, I think this is, uh, this is a good place to wrap it up. That sounds great. Is there is there any place online, any social media or website that you want to share, or would you rather remain uh, anonymous? Um, I'm just trying to think of how much embarrassing shit is on my website. There's like there's nothing on my website anyways except embarrassing stuff. So, uh, PatrickPrice.io. That's my website. <laughs> if you wanna, or just if you wanna email me, I at PatrickPrice.io. Cool. There you have it. Um, I think I'll have to go check it out myself after this. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, now I have to go check it out. I haven't looked at it in, in months. <laughs> okay, well, you can let me know once you... Hey, there's a little inspiration for exactly, you, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. But like I said, you will have you have a little bit till this this podcast will likely be released. So, <laughs> um, Cool. Well, that was that was super insightful. This took a lot of, a lot of interesting twists that I, I wasn't expecting. You have a lot you're a much more profound deeper thinker than i knew we, like we we obviously haven't spent a ton of time 
actually very much time at all together. Yeah, we hung out no. in the sauna one time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was really cool, man. I really appreciate you coming and and showing up with your heart and really opening up to us. Yeah. Well, uh, my pleasure. I'd be happy to be on again if you're interested. Excellent. So. Thank you so much, man. Alrighty, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Mean Mind, and we'll catch you next time. Be well. Mm-hmm.